The state of trust in America seems to be in free fall. Trust in government, big business, and large institutions has unraveled. Distrust has begun to fray the fabric of society and erode trust in community, neighbors, and even between individuals. True leaders recognize that a culture of trust is not just a nice-to-have HR program. A culture of trust is key to innovation, excellence, and sustainable success. Legendary leader and entrepreneur Joel Peterson, chairman of JetBlue Airways and founding partner of the investment management firm Peterson Partners, shares his 10 laws of trust on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? Joel Peterson, thanks for joining us on Therefore What? My pleasure. Uh, this is what I think is one of the most important topics in the country today, this idea of trust. Uh, your book uh, coming out in September, The Ten Laws of Trust. Uh, tell us tell us why. Why is trust such a critical thing for you? Well, I've tried to run companies and hire CEOs and work through problems for the past 45 years. And I found that trust is the most valuable currency that you've got as a leader. Uh, if if you have high trust with your team, with your suppliers, with your creditors, with your shareholders, uh, you can do anything. If you don't, you can do nothing. And I see trust as strained in yeah. society today generally. Yeah. So it's a really important topic. I think people don't largely understand trust. They think it's this fuzzy, feel-good kind right. of a thing. I like this person, therefore I trust them. And it's a much harder-edged concept. Yeah. And so to me, it seemed like it was time to get everything down that I'd learned through the school of hard knocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, still in that school. <laughs> yeah, so am I. Uh, I first heard you talk about trust uh, down at Stanford, where, where you teach leadership and uh, entrepreneurship and a host of other things down there. And was just so impressed with the approach and how you've applied this to different companies over the course of your career. Uh, but it's really become even more than that. It's become a real passion. I know that your your book, you're you're not doing this to to sell books and make a lot of money. You're doing you're donating this uh, to charity. Tell Give me that process. How did this become so central to who you are? For me, I be, I was betrayed in a couple of instances. I failed mm. uh, to do things as well as I thought. And I tried to analyze what caused this. And I really realized I hadn't built the trust levels to the point that I could pull off what I needed to do. Yeah. And so I started to think more and more about trust. And it's occurred to me that it's the most important thing that we understand as leaders. Yeah. Uh, and we've all been betrayed at some level. Right. And so overcoming betrayal is also a big part of it. Yeah. And so I just started to put all this together and decided, you know, we I need to get down what I've learned so that not everybody has to go through the same cycle of right. disappointment. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into it a little bit. Um, one of the things that struck me in in the book is the fact that we have this trust problem, and a lot of it is because of short term thinking or even transactional. I think we've seen this in a lot of our politicians uh, and a lot of business leaders today. They're no longer about relationships. Everything is just a transaction or a deal. Uh, and that seems to be undermining, again, trust within the organization, between organizations. Uh, how do we deal with that? Well, I think it does start with people realizing that life is a marathon, mm. that you're going to run into yourself over and over <laughs> and over again. Negotiations are serial, not episodic. Mm. 
Uh, and so many, many times you're going to find that you're negotiating with a person that you met 10 years earlier and they either had a positive or negative impression. So the idea of building a trust, a high trust brand mm-hmm. takes years. It's a molecule at a time, a conversation at a time. And so uh, that notion is, I think, a really important one for people to say early on in their careers that they're going to develop a high trust brand. Mm -hmm. They're going to work in high trust organizations. And then I think it tends to spread. Uh, you you start the uh, the book and the, and the laws with one that I think some people say, wait a minute, why why is that about me? You talk about integrity that that really has to be the beginning, right? It, it is the beginning. If the leader doesn't have trust, then the, there's very tough very tough to push trust through an organization. And integrity is really that there's very little gap between what you say and what you do. Ultimately, we trust people who deliver on promises. Yeah. I mean, if you really had to boil it all down, it's people, your, your brand, your own personal brand is your promise. And if you deliver on that promise over and over in tough times and great times, no matter how things are going, people tend to trust you. And that brand spreads. And uh, But if the leader doesn't have that, people are also very smart. Uh, they pick up very quickly on somebody having a lack of integrity. I, I I want to drill down in this uh, institutional component, building this culture of trust. Uh, we, we were talking before we started and, and just how most organizations have no idea if they are a high trust organization because nobody's nobody's talking to each other. There's not the, that communication line. Uh, how do you how do you figure that out? And then how do you start to build that culture? Well, that, that's actually one of the reasons there's a second edition of this book is because I did a first edition with AMA, American Management Association, and I would give talks and people would ask the question, well, how do I know what the level of trust is in my organization? I have a feeling, but I don't really know. So we developed with Franklin Cut a diagnostic tool Mm -hmm. that's been psychometrically tested that says this actually does yield valid results. So if you take these 10 questions that relate to the 10 laws of trust, get your whole organization to take it, you'll get a score. And if you find that you're at a 30, you'll say, geez, we could be better than this. And then measure it again in six months and then find out which laws are you breaking and get it up to 40. And so ultimately, it's a little bit like the net promoter score. Right. You can say we can actually manage this thing that seems vague. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and so Fred Reichheld of Bain developed this thing called the Net Promoter Score that so many companies are right. using today. I would love to see something like that happen with trust, oh. where people say this is the fuel yeah. for building a great organization, and we measure it. Yeah. So that's the idea. Yeah. One of the things that I've seen in in so many organizations, uh, in in my own consulting over the years, uh, it's often you go into that organization and you see people who still love the company or love the brand, but because of that lack of trust, they've They've had to disconnect who they are from what they do because it, it just it's it's too painful to care. And so then you end up with either people who leave good talent walks out the door or they disconnect and they become mediocre and they stay, which is also bad. Yeah, they're deadwood. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're people who should leave, but they don't. Yeah. And they become cynical and they become wary. Yeah. Wariness is really expensive. Mm. It is time consuming and having deadwood built up around a company is really a bad way to, to develop. Now, companies that have been successful for a period of time, they've often built up enough uh, credibility in the market. They may have capital. Right. So they can survive for a long time. That's right. But they don't innovate anymore. They're not flexible. And the durability of the company is is uh, in peril. Yeah. And, and 
I think it's one of those where uh, cash flow covers a, a multitude of sins, right? Sure. Especially as it relates to trust. Yep. Uh, so tell me, what are some of the common things that you see in organizations that are kind of the red flags in terms of maybe we're not having the level of trust or culture of trust that we need? Well, you see it in high turnover, for one thing. I mean, there, mm-hmm. there are certain measures that you can see sort of immediately. If you can't attract great people, and once you've attracted them, you can't keep them, mm-hmm. often it's because there's a breakdown of trust. Mm-hmm. Because people stay for relationships. They stay because they're members of a winning team doing something meaningful. Yeah. And if they don't feel that that's happening, they start looking around. And people are much more likely today to take on several careers in their lifetime. So you really have to create a special place yeah. to, to hire and keep people. Another thing that I see, though, is that communications suffer. Mm-hmm. People withhold uh, telling bad news. They spin things. Manage they, up. <laughs> they manage up. They communicate by rumor. And so, and people are smart. Yeah. They pick it up. Yeah. Hang around the water cooler and you'll find out what's really going on. If, yeah. if what's going on at the water cooler cooler is really different from what's otherwise yeah. talked about you got a trust problem yeah that's right if there if there's not an alignment there between the that, that's such a good uh, that could be a measurement in and of itself is yeah. the water cooler in alignment <laughs> with what's right. happening at the staff meetings and the executive meetings right. good test right. but uh, i mean another thing is people are just happier mm-hmm. you know if people are trusted that me- usually that means they're empowered yes they can do things they can make decisions in an organization where you don't really trust the leader uh, what happens is that you're not sure what he or she is going to say or do. And so people don't make decisions. Mm. They manage information. Nobody's empowered and it's all waiting on the leader to make the call. And most decisions should be made by the team. Yes. If it, you're, you're in a leadership position and you're making other than 51, 49 calls, you've not done a good job of delegating. Yeah. High trust organizations delegate, they empower people, and uh, they celebrate their success. Yeah. And one of the things you raise in the book that I that I really love, it, it's sort of this, uh, the cost savings <laughs> Of, of being a high trust organization. You, you just mentioned, you know, how decisions are made. And uh, I used to always joke that, you know, if, if a company is always two weeks and one consultant away from, you know, doing a new initiative or accomplishing something, uh, that's a that's a red flag. But you talk about real cost savings in terms of trust. What is that? Well, I mean, if you think about any time that, that, that there's low trust, you have lots of lawyers crawling over everything. <laughs> that's right. Lawyers are expensive. Yes. Lawyers are wary. Yeah. Lawyers look at worst case scenarios. Mm. They look at remedies. They have a certain way that they process problems. Whereas entrepreneurs are kind of on the other extreme is they're lighting fires and they're they're maybe taking yeah. risks they shouldn't take. Somewhere in between, there's this place where people are high trust, mm-hmm. high uh, contact uh, relationships, yeah. transparency, where people are flexible, they innovate, they change direction. You know, low trust organizations often don't fix their problems mm. because you get punished. Yeah. If you if you make a mistake, you get punished. So people hide them mm. for a long time. Well, that's expensive. Yes. Uh, high trust organizations experiment, innovate. If it's not working, they cut off the pilot and move to something else. Yeah. And there's no recrimination. High trust leaders absorb blame and reflect credit. Mm. And that builds credibility. Yeah. That builds a sense of it's safe here to try stuff. Yeah. So high trust organizations tend to, to move fairly quickly yeah. and people are happier. Yeah. Uh, I want to drill down on that just a little bit, this idea of absorbing blame and, re- and reflecting credit. Uh, give me some examples of, of that from, from your experience in your career. So early on in my career, I blew it 
uh, with uh, trying to develop an, an information system. I was ahead of my time. I'll, I'll call it that uh, with IT. I thought IT is the wave of the future and real estate is primitive. If we develop a great IT system, we're going to be ahead of everyone else. Mm. Well, $10 million into it, it just wasn't <laughs> It wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And uh, so I basically fell on the sword there and said, this is my mistake. Mm. I offered to resign over it and say, you know, this is my mistake and everything. And I had a, a great boss at the time and he said, just declare victory and move on. <laughs> and he just didn't let me wallow in it. And, uh, you know, we, we fixed it over time. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Uh, let's talk for a minute about uh, something else that you've uh, alluded to in terms of uh, why this next iteration of the 10 laws of trust. And it has to do with how do you fix the, the breaches of trust? And we see that in organizations. We're seeing that, in I think, nationally in our politics and in a host of other things. Uh, how do you go about repairing the breach? Yeah, it's a very tough issue, an important problem. There are two kinds of breaches. You know, I talked about when you when you actually deliver on promises, you're building trust. Mm -hmm. Some people don't deliver on promises or on expectations through really no fault of their own. Not a bad intent. Sure. They just didn't misunderstood. Yeah, Yeah, it didn't work. They misunderstood the assignment or whatever. Mm -hmm. Those are breaches. Mm -hmm. Those those don't build trust. Yeah. Yeah. But what you have to do is immediately recognize those, give feedback and correct them. So that that kind of of a breach of trust uh, really is a question of giving immediate direct feedback. I used to say that I don't believe in annual performance reviews. Now we do them, and I kind of believe in them. I think they are they're good discipline. But I th- I really believe in having a feedback session after any important meeting. Mm. What did we do well? What didn't go well? Yeah. And so you have feedback along the way, and if you can do that, then you can sort of maintain this trust by uh, correcting small breaches in the moment. Mm. So that's the first kind. The second kind is where somebody really does something bad. They steal or lie or whatever. I think in those cases, uh, what I realize is there are a lot of fish in the sea. There's no point in staying in business with somebody who can do that. So you just, you basically have to recover. The problem people have is they recriminate. Mm-hmm. They relive it. Mm. They they have a hard time getting to the next phase yeah. of their lives. And the only th- way that I know to deal with those kinds of betrayals is to forgive, which means to forget mm-hmm. and move on. And you can tell the more you're living in the past, the more you're reliving it, the less you've been able to do that. The more you're really focused on the future yeah. and you're moving on, you've actually overcome that betrayal. I, I remember a, uh, a great quote um, with someone who had been treated very poorly in a community and uh, had really been discriminated against and and uh, but yet he just forgave and forgave and forgave and and his spouse asked you know how how can you do that these people treated you so awful and he says oh, i only have to forgive once uh, but to hold a grudge or to be bitter, I have to relive it and all of those negative emotions every single day. That's right. So That's that ability to, to move forward and to move beyond, it, I think it's much easier to, to realign and get back to that trust culture if you're moving forward as opposed to if you're just hunkered down yeah. doing nothing. So I think the measure of you're living in the future or in the mm. past yeah. is a great way to assess that. All of that said, it is not easy. You know, if you've ever been betrayed at any level, you realize you re- you relive those yeah. betrayals. Yeah. And so I and I to me it's get into the future. Yeah. Have something you're working for. Uh, toward. That's great. That's great advice. You, you work uh, with a lot of young entrepreneurs. Yes. Uh, your work at, at Stanford, obviously, a lot of leadership there. Uh, what do you find with the uh, the rising generation, this uh, next crop of uh, entrepreneurs and business people? How are they viewing 
trust. So I think they're a little bit wary. Mm-hmm. They've lived through the the meltdown in 07, 08. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of things that they expect. You know, they were told, go to college and everything will be fine. Everything will be good, life. yeah. <laughs> and all of a sudden they have a big bunch of debts and they don't have a job. Yeah. yeah. Um, or buy a house. You know, if you buy a house, <laughs> you'll have security for the rest of your life. And they find that houses go the down. The market dropped, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there have been a lot of things that make them a little, a little more wary than most that I... So I've taught at Stanford for 27 years. Mm. And I think I've seen at least sort of three generations of them. This most recent is wary. They're cautious. On the other hand, they're very idealistic. You know, they want to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And they have a sense, a cross-generational sense. They're not really just short-term self-interested. They have a real sense of humanity. Mm. And so I think there's some wonderful starting points and they'll, they'll learn a lot when they're on the job. And so I'm, I'm very hopeful for the generation. Yeah. Yeah. They, they have an interesting perspective. I, I think in some ways they're, they're even a little more communitarian, a little more outward focused than their parents, uh, for sure. For sure. Uh, they do it a little different. They do a lot of it online and then through social media and so on. What do you think the, the places for that rising generation, uh, the, there's always kind of the intergenerational battles, uh, in terms of business and, and, uh, obviously in the, po- political space as well and uh, you've you've had your interaction there with a, a lot of politicians through the Hoover Institute and your your role in leadership there uh, what have you learned that is kind of the crossover point between uh, politics and business in terms of of that leadership and and trust well I think politicians uh, they have a certain kind of leadership which is basically to find common ground their job is to compromise and compromise requires trust mm-hmm. and so politicians so I think those who are thinking about politics have to really get good, not just in negotiating short-term deals, right? but at really thinking about how does this play forward? And yeah. so what I try to teach my students is think about how your decision will look in five years, because the instinct is to maximize everything in the moment. right? And I think that's what people are talking So by social media, by immediate feedback, by the news cycle, you know, the news cycle is so short now, yeah. you know, if you... It, Unless it keeps going, it's gone in 24 hours right. and you're on to the next thing. So I think uh, getting people so they can think about longer term, about the next generation. Yeah. I, I always tell my students, uh, don't ever punish somebody for being self-interested because everybody, every human is mm-hmm. self-interested. The question is, are you self-interested in the short term, a benighted kind of self-interest right. where it's immediate, it's for me, or is it more uh, enlightened? Mm. where you're thinking about what's the good of the whole community because that's also going to be in your interest right too. so try to develop a kind of an enlightened self-interest yeah and so I think the generate I think they're hungry for that kind of thing I don't think yeah. they hear it all the time but I find my students really respond positively it rings true to it them, rings true it? to them yeah. they want it they want to believe that that's possible yeah it's uh, <laughs> it's sort of like oxygen uh, yeah. you know we, we we think they don't want it or they don't get it but then you share it and immediately that's like oh yeah, we want more of that. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. So I've been wanting to ask you a question. I, I did an interview on this podcast uh, earlier this year with former Senator Joe Lieberman, and he used a phrase uh, that he called the integrity of compromise. Uh, and much as, as you had explained that, you know, every every compromise requires trust. Uh, so I want you to take that integrity of compromise and apply it to the, the business world. What's a what's an example where that integrity of compromise really reinforced trust or or broke? So I don't know Senator Lieberman, and I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but here's how I would think about that. 
kind of an issue. And, and, and compromise usually comes out of a negotiation. Mm-hmm. Many negotiations are not these stylized negotiations where you sit across the table. Right. <laughs> but they're really, every conversation is in some sense a yeah. negotiation. There's a give, get. Maybe you're just getting information. It may be your, but, but if, if you think about it that way, in every negotiation, there are sort of winners and losers. And I think the integrity would say both parties need to win. And I think if you don't provide a win for the other side, I think that's actually the disease we have in Washington yeah. right now is people are talking past each other. Mm-hmm. They're unwilling to let the other side win anything. Yeah. And to me, it's very hard to move forward in a society unless you say, I want the other party to win. So when I would negotiate deals, I would try to figure out how can I help the person on the other side of the table win? What do they want? Yeah. If they really want something at a certain price, I'll try to give it to them at that price and I'll set the terms. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a way to have trade-offs. Yeah. And yeah. I think to me, there's an integrity in yeah. that. There's a whole, a holistic way of looking at problems where you then make these trade-offs in a way where both sides can win. Yeah. I think we've lost a little bit of that art. Uh, I, I completely agree. And I, I think it's the culture has become so much of a win over rather than win with. Yep. Um, but without that kind of integrity, uh, then you really can't have trust. And uh, I love what you said earlier uh, in terms of if you're looking at this for the long haul uh, and realizing you're probably going to negotiate with this person a decade from now or yep. two decades from now, it changes your approach. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. If you think there are consequences, if you think you're accountable, if you, if people who believe ultimately they are accountable mm-hmm. somehow to somebody, to some relation, whether it's a higher power, society, future generations, an enterprise, but this idea of accountability beyond yourself is a really powerful way of assessing whether you're dealing with somebody who can have high integrity, yeah. who you can rely on to make good, all things considered decisions. Actually, that's one of the, the terms that was the most valuable to me in the early early years of my business development was somebody said, this is an all things considered good decision. Love that. And I love that. It just allowed me to not be solving for the perfect decision for crushing the other guy. (laughs) Right. All things considered, I want them to win, Mm. but I need to have it so it works for me too. And that gives you a spirit and a way of going about things that allows you to have this integrity of, of, um, of compromise. Yeah. Love that. One of the things that I thought was uh, was great and an area in the book that I think most people don't really think about when they think about trust, and, and that is, you know, creating this common dream, this common vision and mission. Uh, tell me how that applies to building trust. Well, so lots of companies have a mission statement that they post on the wall. Right. Frame it and post it on the wall. <laughs> Gold frame. <laughs> Nobody can recite it. It means nothing to anyone. They don't own it. Yeah. They don't own the mission. Mm. To me, the most important thing is that you create, you create, you're working together on a common dream. Mm-hmm. What unites you? Because when people share values, what that, all that means is they have the same priorities. Yeah. And if you share priorities with people and you're working together on that, that's really meaningful. And so to me, one of the, one of the high trust, uh, one of the measures of a high trust organization is that they can recite what their dream is. Mm. So at Peterson Partners, for example, we talk about, we are in business to help our entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. Mm. 
Love now, that. we could say is to get high returns for our investors. Right. Because everybody serves a number of masters. Sure, sure. You're making a market, in effect, in yeah. the business. Well, you have to decide who's your primary customer. And we made the determination that our primary customer were these entrepreneurs that we're backing. Mm. Our investors will do just fine. That's if right. If we can help if them be successful. That. Yeah. And so it's thinking about that and letting people express themselves mm. in ways that are consistent with that. Over time, there develops this sense of, this is the only place I want to work. I want to talk to you for a minute about... Uh, something that I think is, is kind of fascinating in society today, and that is uh, a lot of people talk about consensus. And uh, I, I've always said that consensus is not 100% agreement. Right. It's 100% support once the decision is made. Uh, one of the laws that you talk about uh, in the book is creating this space for respectful conflict. Tell me more about that. Well, I actually think that uh, organizations that don't have conflict are really boring because <laughs> they're not ventilating yeah. ideas. They're not creating new ideas. They're not pushing back. Mm-hmm. You hone your arguments. You hone your uh, ideas in the face of pressure. And so a lot of times what I would do is I would ask somebody to make the opposite. If we're getting ready to make a decision, mm. somebody would be assigned the job of making the opposite case. Love that. So you hear both sides of it. Yeah. And then you respectfully disagree and you refine your arguments you say, often it comes down to a couple of simple bets. Mm -hmm. We are making this investment or we're backing this person because of A, B, and C. Do we all feel okay about that? I I think having um, organizations make decisions by committee is disastrous. Mm -hmm. Uh, So consensus is very different from making the decision. In the end, I think you need to have somebody who makes the call and you say to everybody, have we heard everybody's point of view? Right. If we have, uh, I'll make this decision. Here's what it'll be. And uh, I'm asking for your support when we leave this room. Do I have your support? Love that. And I think once you've got that, then I think you can move forward and execute. That's right. Without everybody being totally in agreement. Yeah. But they are in agreement that they're going to execute on that decision. Another piece of that that's quite helpful often is to say, and if it has turned out to not be a good decision, we'll change it. Love that. <laughs> it really helps. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and, it, and it, again, I think it reinforces trust in the fact that, hey, we're, we're not going to get them all right. Exactly. And when we get them wrong, we're going to fix them we're and get them right it. really fast. We're going to fix it as fast as we can. Yeah. And that, that leads to the, the last uh, of the laws that I want to hit. There, there's so many more that we could uh, spend the whole day on this. But I want you to talk to me for a minute about the idea of humility. It's one of those uh Society often is saying, you know, humility is weak and passive and and all of those things. Uh, You say it's a strength and it's critical to building trust. Why? Well, I think a lot of people don't understand what humility is. I think the idea that you're self-effacing, that you're timid, that that is not humility. Humility is that you are learning. Mm. You're willing to say that you made a mistake. You're vulnerable to the mistakes that you've made. People will trust you more. I found that when I admit that I made a mistake, people don't want to beat me up. They say, don't take it so hard. Don't be so hard on yourself. You know, they actually lift (laughs) some of the burden. They actually help. And it makes you more vulnerable and more likely to get feedback. I think one of the worst, Mm. one of the worst things about being a CEO is you can get cut off. Yeah, from what's really going on. People feed you what they think you want to know. And I think if you're humble, if you're vulnerable, if you're open, you can continue to get good information. Mm. And if you get good information, you can build a high trust organization. So to Mm. me, I think it's one of the key laws. And we've all known people who are are haughty, prideful, who don't listen. We don't trust them, really. If they have a lot of power, if they can control our future and pay us money or not, we'll trust them for that period of time. But things go poorly. All of a sudden, we're out the door. Yeah. 
And so what you want to do is build a high trust organization that's durable, mm-hmm. not just for the moment, yeah, but that is really durable. Yeah, fantastic. I think that should be your next book. Start with starting <laughs> with humility. I love yeah. that, uh, and the fact that it is so easy for leaders to become isolated. Uh, sure. An isolated leader rarely makes good decision and rarely leads very long. I think in the end, right? right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the statistics are the average tenure for a CEO in America is three and a half years. Wow. And it's hard. It's not a long shelf life. It is not very long. And if you think about what you're doing is you're driving a fleet. To turn a fleet around takes longer than three and a half years. Yeah. So CEOs really need seven to 10 years to do that. And so I think the only way to do that is to build high trust within the organization. Therefore, what? Well, we've we've come to the point in the program. the The title of the program is "Therefore What." As our listeners have been uh, engaged here for the last twenty five minutes or so, what's the "Therefore What" for you? What do you hope people think different? What do you hope they do different uh, after listening to this podcast and and reading the book? So, I would hope that they would believe that they can be intentional about building their own high trust brand and building high trust within an organization. And they can nurture trust, they can repair trust, and they can value trust and move forward in trust-based ways. It will make them better people, will make their organizations better organizations, will make their families better. It it makes society better to be able to uh, deal with high trust. Mm, Love that. The book is The Ten Laws of Trust. Joel Peterson, thanks so much for being with us today. Good to be with you. All right. Remember, after the story is told, after the principle is presented, after the discussion and debate have been had, the question for all of us is, therefore what? Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you're listening today. And be sure to rate this episode and leave us a review. Follow us on DeseretNews.com slash TW and subscribe to our newsletter. This is Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News. Thanks for engaging with us on Therefore What?